announcement which I would like to include on our radio broadcast too just before I read our second lesson which will be from the Sermon on the Mount chapter 5 of the Gospel according to Matthew beginning at verse 31. Uh, but before I read the lesson let me make a very special announcement. Uh, during the recent snowstorm Mr. J. Ballou of Black Mountain, an electrician for the Haynes Electric Company in Asheville, was seriously injured when he went with an emergency crew to work trying to repair uh, damage that had been done to electrical wiring in a snowstorm in South Carolina. He lost his right arm and both legs and is now in the burn center in Charleston, South Carolina. Mr. Ballou has five children that range in age from four months to 15 years. He lives in Black Mountain. Uh, he is one of our neighbors, and we therefore have a Christian responsibility to do what we can to be helpful. A fund has been established to help the family and started at the Mountainside Baptist Church in Black Mountain, and the Bank of Asheville has set up a fund also. Any financial help our community can give will be greatly appreciated by the members of the family and by uh, his Christian friends in the church uh, in Black Mountain. I'm sure that our church treasurer can make arrangements to transmit any funds you might wish to give through local benevolences in our church for this purpose also. And we also want to add our prayers to this family and their need too. Now then, our lesson today... Uh, two weeks ago, we interrupted our series of sermons on the uh, Sermon on the Mount to observe our Christian witness season. You will remember that John, John Hillsman spoke to us about uh, mission work in Zaire, and then last Sunday I tried to speak on the Great Commission as it affects us all, and then today we come back to our study on the Sermon on the Mount. After having gone through the Beatitudes, Jesus begins to show how he has not come to destroy either the law or the prophets, but he has come to fulfill them. You remember I used the illustration by saying that an acorn may be destroyed in two ways. You can take an acorn and place it on a piece of concrete and smash it uh, with a hammer and destroy it. Or you can dig a hole and put it in the ground and plant it and it can grow up into a big tree. Well, Jesus came to fulfill the law uh, and the prophets. He came to show us something better and deeper and fuller. And so he taught us that we would have to do better than simply do away with not murdering anyone else, but that we would have to banish hateful and angry thoughts, the kind of thoughts and expressions that cut other people down and destroy their personhood. This is the sort of thing that often creeps into our conversation uh, in families, sometimes in school dormitories, in other things that we do. But this cutting of people down can be a, a terribly damaging thing, and so Jesus forbids us to do this. Uh, he tells us that we are not to tear people down. He also tells us that uh, if we hold grudges in our heart, that we cannot properly come and worship God. He says, if you come to the altar and remember that you've got something against your brother, don't bring your gift. God would rather have you leave your gift and go and be reconciled with your brother and then come back and make your offering. 
and then Jesus talked about adultery. And he tells us that adultery is more than just the physical act of adultery, but he bans lustful thoughts. And those of us who take seriously the words of Jesus know that we live in a time in which uh, sex is exploited in advertising, in films, in books, in posters, uh, to such an enormous degree that we have to be very careful here. He speaks, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it away. If your hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. He does not mean this in a literal sense that we're to pull out our eye or to cut off our hand. But the eye is the light of our mind. What we see, we can bring light to and understand, and so we're not to read salacious things. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, and I'll say it a hundred and one this morning. There are certain things that ought not to be read for the simple reason they never should have been written. There are some movies that you ought not to attend for the simple reason that they never should have been produced. I agree that they are works of genius. The devil is no fool. Uh, he is very clever. He can make clever, dirty jokes. He can make clever, dirty films. But there is not within the walls of this chapel any saint so holy and so close to Jesus that you can take these things into your mind and into your heart without them having some deadening effect. Until sin tastes bitter, Jesus won't taste sweet. But when Jesus tastes sweet, sin will taste bitter. So he tells us, therefore, to avoid these things. Uh, and then he goes on. It was said, whosoever divorces his wife, because this comes right in with adultery, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. I wonder if that's where the Presbyterian Church got its thing on the letter of dismissal. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And again you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill to your, your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whosoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax gatherers the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than any others? Do not even the Gentiles the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God grant to us his grace in understanding and applying his word to our hearts and lives. Yesterday, I talked on the telephone with a very dear friend of mine who is being nominated to be an elder in a church in Florida. A couple of years ago, we were going out to dinner one night. My wife was with me and his wife with him. He had been previously married, and he explained to me about his previous marriage and that he had divorced and remarried on the grounds of mental cruelty. And he asked me if I would have performed the ceremony, and I said no. And he said, I respect you for that. Because he said, I was not a Christian at the time I remarried. He's a man who has literally given away millions of dollars to Christian work. And uh, yesterday, his problem was whether or not he should allow his name to stand as a candidate for an elder in his church. And so he is a great respecter of Scripture, and he applies the Scriptures to himself. We looked at Scripture and talked about Scripture some on the phone together. For those of you who are concerned about this very important and painful subject that has to be dealt with, divorce, there are a number of scriptures that you ought to note and write down. There are first of all this passage in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And then again, I'll just give you the chapter number, Matthew 19. And then again in Mark 10. And then again in Luke 16, 18. And then again in 1 Corinthians 7 you will see that in all of these scriptures, our Lord Jesus is being challenged, except the one in 1 Corinthians, our Lord Jesus has been challenged by people to interpret a law of Moses which had been given out of consideration for the hardness of people's hearts. But each time Jesus will go back to the beginning, back to Genesis, back to Genesis 2, and the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here a principle to be put in operation. The moment these two came together in a commitment before God and to each other, and then the words are strong which Jesus put, whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, let no man separate. Now, the, the ancients had gotten to such dallying with this particular law that uh, in Deuteronomy 24, 1, we read, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. That's all he had to do. And that was a divorce. The um, rabbis begin to interpret it so loosely that if a woman burned the food, uh, he could divorce his wife. Uh, you could divorce him literally. This is a part of rabbinical teaching. Uh, they could, um, if they put too much salt in the food, uh, mistakes that could be made just for almost anything that came up. Well, Jesus' teaching comes along and goes right back to the beginning and says from the beginning it was not so. God meant that marriage should be one man and one woman married until death they do part. Now, if you'll notice in some of the marriage ceremonies that you read now, and by the way, I don't use them. I want to make that plain. Uh, they, they have, an, instead of until death uh, do we part, uh, it, it is as long as love shall last. Boy, that is fluffy. That is straight out of Hollywood. <laughs> and, and love in, in Hollywood is nothing but sex. And uh, it, it's, it's uh, just no good. And uh, I'm not going to uh, go into this part of it because I've got two other subjects to deal with. But uh, there is one thing that has to be kept in mind here. When the Pharisees tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whom therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. This is called an exceptive clause. It means a clause which would permit divorce. Now about remarriage, it, the interpretation would re revolve around what you mean by divorce. As I understand Scripture, and uh, you may understand Scripture in the way the Lord teaches you, but as I understand it and as the way the Old Westminster Confession of Faith uh, uh, put it very strongly, um, it's, it's plain. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Because in the Old Testament, adultery was punished by death. And if the other person was dead, then of course you'd be free to remarry. Um, and so it was uh, a punishable by death and it's to be looked upon as that seriously. Now, it should be also noticed that this is not given as a recommendation. He is not commending that this be done. This is an acceptive clause and it is reluctantly given. Uh, I have studied hard on this question. John Stott, who is a great evangelical scholar and chaplain to the Queen in England and the rector of all souls at Langham Place in London and one of the most gifted Bible teachers in the whole world, says that for many years he has made it his policy that whenever people call him on the phone or approach him and say that they want to ask him about divorce, 
that he always steadfastly refuses to speak with them about the subject of divorce until he has spoken to them about the subject of what marriage really means and about the possibilities of reconciliation. And then, and only then, does he reluctantly enter into the other acceptive clause. Because the thing which we should remember in America is that the basic unit of our society is the home. There's not a one of us here except possibly one or two foreign students who come from countries where divorce just uh, won't happen, um, who hasn't been touched by divorce. My mother was divorced. I have one brother and one sister divorced. There are seven children in my family, so I'm not being cruel or unkind to people who are divorced. And people who have been divorced are not honorary lepers. And I'm not trying to convey that impression. Uh, I'm trying to say that the statements here from Scripture about this painful uh, subject is put down for us to adhere to, that we are to remember that marriage is a very solemn agreement and that it is one that is to be entered into for uh, our life and that unchastity, which is in the eyes of Scripture equal to death, is the only uh, cause that we see here uh, by which it may be uh, broken and the other person may be remarried. Now, there is some discussion about a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where a believer is deserted by a non-believer because of their faith in Christ, and there is debate among conservative and evangelical scholars as to whether or not the um, innocent party of that breach may be remarried. But those are the only two acceptive clauses that I know about. But back to my friend in Florida. Now that it's done, what shall you do? Well, you shall do the best that you can do for the glory of God. And you shall remember that it's not the unpardonable sin. You shall remember that God has great compassion and understanding and that he will forgive and that he can make all things new. And this is what we look to there. We look toward God's forgiveness backward and we look forward to the future. But hopefully you need to be taught about this now and hopefully we need to always seek for reconciliation in the great prayer that the other horror might not come about. I, I come from Texas, as most of you know, and one of my favorite authors spent a good bit of time in Texas and died here in Asheville, North Carolina. His name was O. Henry, William Sidney Porter, a great short story writer. In one of his short stories, he writes a very moving story called The Baby's Shoes. I remember that vividly because in that short story, O. Henry, writing uh, right after World War I, begins to relate what was then when divorce started to become popular, a sophisticated young couple's agreement that they would get a divorce because their ways and interests had simply changed and their jobs had become more important than each other and so they were going to divorce. They resolved that there would be no sentiment attached to their divorce, that they would simply look upon it as the sensible thing to do. It didn't work out, so what? They would be rid of the marriage. And so the, the woman 
and the man had discussed it in the living room. She decided that she would go in the bedroom and gather up her things and put them into a suitcase and be gone, and then he would go into the bedroom and gather up his things and put them in a suitcase, and he'd be gone. She went into the bedroom first, and she began to pack her suitcases. And then as she began to go through the chest of drawers, she came across the baby's shoes, and she grabbed the shoes because they had had a little baby, a little boy. And the baby had lived to be almost a year old and had died. And so when she saw the little baby's shoes, she grabbed the shoes and she said, that was my baby, and I'm going to keep these shoes. And she took them out and started to put them into her suitcase. And then as she looked at them, she thought, no, that baby was his too. He loved that baby. He gave him his name. And I remember how he used to rush home from work and go stay straight to the cradle to look at that baby and how he would talk to him. It wouldn't be right for me to take the shoes. And so for the first time in a long, long time, she put him first. And so she put the shoes out on a table in the bedroom and went out into the sitting room. He came into the room to get his things. He began to pack them into the suitcases. He glanced over on the table and saw the shoes and grabbed them, and he said, I'm going to keep these. That was my son. And then as he held the shoes and looked at them, he thought, no, she nearly died when that baby was born. And I remember when he was sick, she stayed up all night night after night, nursing him back to hell. It wouldn't be right for me to take the shoes. And so for the first time in a long time, he put her first and decided that he would give her the shoes. And so he walked out into the sitting room to present her with the shoes. Well, you know what happened. When she put him first and he put her first, they both put each other first, and they came back together again, and they were reconciled. That's the kind of love that the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians speaks about. And yesterday, my friend said to me on the phone, who has been through so much pain, he said, I never knew what the word agape meant, because I did not grow up in a church that taught me the authority of the scriptures, I didn't know about agape love, and there were many things that I could have done that I didn't do. But he said, I know about it now. I know about it now. And agape love is what the Sermon on the Mount in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians and Jesus' love for us is all about. Now next, Jesus is going to speak to us about not only the relationship in marriage, but he speaks to us about our word. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Miss Clarell, uh, she can't make it naturally. <laughs> It'll all bleach out. And uh, only your hairdresser really knows. You can't make one hair, much less white or black. Uh, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now here he deals with the matter of keeping our words. Do you remember last November when everyone exalted in what happened at Camp David? Peace in the Middle East. Begin was kissing Sadat in the White House. Words, words, words. But who's going to keep their word? <laughs> That's the problem. It all revolves around whether or not you take seriously your words. The, the time in which Jesus lived, the people had embellished their uh, vows to such an incredible degree that they, they were really very funny. I was reading one of them yesterday, and one young man was, had just a brand new mustache, and he was swearing by the hair of his new mustache and by the hair on his head, and by the honor of his children yet to be born, and uh, by everything that he could think of to try to reinforce the fact that he would keep his word. Well, Jesus said these oaths are unnecessary. If you go back to the beginning again, and you let your yes be yes, and your no, no, and you fulfill your obligations, then that's the way it should be, that your words are meant to convey truth. Now then, in the day of Madison Avenue techniques in advertising, all of us become uh, cynical about words. We can know the power of words when we read Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, or when we read George Washington's Farewell Address. We can know the power of words when we hear uh, Winston Churchill, as he makes that great speech right there at the beginning of World War II, we shall fight them in the air, we shall fight them on the sea, we shall fight them on the beaches. And then they said after they switched off the microphones, he put his head down and wept because he said, what will we fight them with? We don't have anything to fight the Germans with. But the power of the words of Winston Churchill had galvanized a nation into such determination that when World War II got at its bloodiest, and on May the 10th, 1941, the Germans sent 2,500 bombers over London to blitz the city of London and to bomb it off the face of the earth. And yet even in that one blitz, they could not destroy the spirit of those people who would not give up. They were inspired and they fought on. They fought on because they were inspired by words. But our words have to convey some thought and we have to have integrity behind them. The other day I spoke with a young lady who's uh, one of her parents works for the Cotton Exchange in 
Memphis, Tennessee. And the cotton brokers there are very proud of the fact that they can make verbal agreements by the nod of a head. They can speak, and they hold to their word, even if it means they're going to lose thousands and thousands of dollars on what they have agreed to, they hold to their word. And so we too, says Jesus, uh, we must be people of our word. He wants us to keep our word because in the keeping of our word, we bring honor to God. They were swearing by the gift on the altar. They were swearing by the temple. And Jesus said, really, everything in life is touched by God. And you honor God when you keep your word. And so he wishes for us there to tell the truth. Now then, Jesus himself was once put on an oath. You remember in Matthew chapter 26, about verse 63, when the high priest adjures him, I adjure you as a, a, a formal legal word, are you the Son of God? And Jesus affirms that he is. You have said it. A lawful oath may be taken, but there should always be truth to what we said. The word credo, from which we get our word credit, means I believe. It's where we get creed, like the Apostles' Creed. Now, how good is your credibility? How good is your credit? They tell us right now that uh, in America we're tremendously in debt because we owe so much. And yet we have got to be able to pay our debts. We have got to be able to be people who are people of integrity. And so he deals with us about the sanctity of human speech. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. Anything beyond these is evil. One of the most honorable men that I have ever had the joy to read about was Robert Edward Lee, the great general in the Confederate Army. Robert E. Lee, it was interesting, the character of Lee and the character of Lincoln because you could see in these men, men of tremendous quality as far as their word was concerned. Tremendous character, tremendous quality. Lincoln, with his great attitude of malice toward none and charity toward all, and if only his policies had been carried out, how much better things could have been in the South after World War, after the Civil War. This, uh, this Lincoln, even his son Tad said that had Lincoln lived, he would have pardoned John Wilkes Booth for shooting him. He was that gracious a man. And uh, Robert E. Lee could manifest the same type of grace and show the same type of integrity. Once at a meeting of his staff, when a junior officer was being put up for promotion to a senior officer, a junior officer who had been greatly critical of Lee and who despised Lee. Lee was asked in the presence of his whole staff what he thought of the man. And Lee ticked off brilliantly the man's gifts and talents and abilities. And when he finished and the vote was taken, the man was promoted. And so when the meeting was over, one of General Lee's aides came to him and said, why on earth did you do that? You know that this man has been hateful and critical toward you. And Lee said the staff asked my opinion of him. 
They did not ask his opinion of me. Now that's tremendous integrity. Now then, Jesus comes to the phrase in which he deals with the fact of returning not, ye have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now we are prone to, we are prone to think that this is a very cruel law. But it's not really a, a cruel law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You have to do a little feuding to be able to appreciate this law. Because there are some people that if you knocked out one tooth, they'd knock out all your teeth. And so, <laughs> so when he limits it to one tooth, uh, uh, it's really, uh, it's a very just law here. And if you watch these Israelis, uh, when the Arafat blows up uh, one of their Israeli bombers someplace, you just wait. You all wait and turn on the radio, television. A few days later, boom, there goes the Arafat bomber. There, there's, a, there's another going to come because they have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that was the way they exacted it, and it was a just law. And I still think that part of that problem in the Middle East comes over whether or not people will trust each other to keep their word. Well, here... Uh, you see an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, said Jesus. That was what was said of old time. And it was a reasonable law. If somebody killed a member of your family, you didn't go wipe out all their family. You went and killed one of them. And so that was uh, supposed to be fair. But Jesus said, but I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now the right cheek, in order for me to slap your right cheek, if you were standing in front of me, I would have to slap you with the back of my right hand. And the expression, I give you the back of my hand, that's supposed to be an insult. So what he's talking about here is insults. How do you react to insults? But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Over in Ireland, there was a famous preacher by the name of Billy Nichols who had been a prize fighter. And Billy Nichols came into a town to hold a revival meeting, and he put up a tent, and he had been a tremendous professional boxer. And uh, um, a man who was the town bully said he wasn't going to have the revival meeting going on there and uh, for him not to put the tent up. And a crowd gathered around to watch because they knew something of Billy's reputation. And uh, so the man came up and smacked him right on the jaw, and Billy Nichols turned to him the other jaw. And the guy smacked him on the other jaw. Then Billy Nichols took off his coat and he said, I have no further instructions. <laughs> well, he kind of, he, he was trying to obey his Lord, but he really sort of missed the point. Now here in a school, in an atmosphere that we have to deal in here with people who can criticize us and we can criticize them, what's going to be our attitude toward criticism? And what's going to be our attitude toward insults? Are we going to have the attitude which Jesus puts down here, or are we not going to have it? Um, he gives four examples here of going way beyond. If someone smites you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Be so big that you won't be a person who is going to allow uh, someone else to make you bitter as a result of, of their uh, injustice and unkindness to you. Think of Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver, men who made great strides for the, for the black people. And they did it because they were willing patiently to endure insults. And then others 
who came after them were able to open doors and to get into places. They had to take a lot. And uh, uh, it paid off. It paid off tremendously. Uh, you can sometimes get to the best of a person by showing him uh, that you're not going to allow him to determine your attitude toward him by being uh, ugly. I have a very close friend, as you know, is a psychiatrist. And he gives to his patients, he keeps them memu uh, photocopied and hands them a copy of an article by Sidney Harris, the syndicated columnist who is a Jew. Sidney Harris write, uh, wrote an article about a Quaker that he one day walked with uh, to buy a newspaper. And uh, the Quaker had spoken kindly to the man selling the newspapers, and the man selling the newspapers had grumped back to the Quaker, and the Quaker opened the paper and was going on reading it. And Harris said to him, why didn't you say something to that smart aleck? And the Quaker turned around and he said, I can't help his attitude toward me, but I can help my attitude toward him. And I'm not going to let my bitterness fight back at him because then I would be like him and I don't want to be like him. And Dr. Griffin says that this is what makes a lot of people sick because they react in just that way. So we have to be big enough to take an insult Jesus could take it. You remember when he was slapped on the face? He could calmly ask, why do you smite me? Do you smite me for a good work that I've done? You remember when uh, the disciples had gone through it? He goes on also, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Uh, now they had a law, the outer garment was kind of like a poncho or a blanket, and you wouldn't sleep with that at night. And the law said you had to give it back to the man at sundown so he'd have a blanket to sleep on so you could get it back. Whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now let me tell you something. That first mile is a lot harder than the second mile because that first mile was very indignant. These were an invaded, occupied people. And you remember Simon of Cyrene had to pick up the cross of Jesus and bear it because a Roman soldier came over and told him, pick up that cross. He could compel him to bear that cross for one statute mile. A Roman soldier could tell any Jew to pick up his pack and carry it for a mile. And if you could just imagine some big, burly Roman soldier, and you're a nice Jew on your way to the synagogue or going someplace uh, to do something good, and the Roman says, hey, Jew, come here. Take this pack one mile. What would your attitude be? Well, Jesus said, pick up the pack and walk the mile that he compels you to walk. Then when you get to the end of the mile, turn around and smile at him and say, sir, I'd like to help you out. I'll take it another mile. Boy, that would really leave an impression, wouldn't it? Think about that. Think how good you'd feel on that second mile. You'd be doing something. That first mile is the one that always gets me because that's when you, you get indignant, when someone makes you do something you don't want to do. But the second mile, and you take it for Jesus, what a difference it can make uh, there. It can make all the difference in the world. And then we are told, and I've got to, to close. You have heard that it was said you will love your neighbor and 
hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You got any enemies? Anyone talking about you? You ever pray for them? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, there's more that we've got to talk about another time. Last night, before I went to sleep, I often read, and I was reading a book on the dropping of the atom bomb on Hiroshima. I told earlier about all those 2,500 German bombers that blasted London on May the 10th, 1941. That one bomb over Hiroshima did more damage a hundred times more than all the 2,500 bombers over London on May 10th. And the weapons that they have now dwarf what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Don Blanding wrote a little poem. It's meant a lot to me. And it's the answer to this whole business of retaliation. What did you see, soldier? What did you see at war? I saw such glory and horrors I've never seen before. I saw men's hearts burnt naked in red crucibles of pain. I saw such godlike courage as I'll never see again. What did you hear, soldier? What did you hear at war? I heard the prayers on lips of men who never prayed before. I heard men tell their very souls confessing each dark stain. I heard them speak the sacred things they would not speak again. What did you eat, soldier? What did you eat at war? I ate the sour bread of fear, the acrid salt of gore. My lips were burnt with wine of hate, the scalding drink of Cain. My tongue has known a bitter taste I would not taste again. What did you think, soldier? What did you think at war? I thought how strange we have not learned from wars that raged before. Except new ways of killing, new multiples of pain, is all the blood that men have shed, but blood shed all in vain. What did you learn, soldier? What did you learn at war? I learned that we must learn sometime what was not learned before that victories won on battlefields are victories won in vain, unless in peace we kill the germs that breed new wars again. What's the answer to all of this? The answer to those germs, and the only way they'll ever be killed, is to have a new heart. What are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Love and joy and peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance, self-control. The Holy Spirit can come into our hearts and lives. He can work in us and in our marriage. He can work in us 
in our speaking, our communicating with other people. He can work in us in our relationships with people who demand and compel things of us, with people who retaliate against us, people who sue us. Are we willing to let the Holy Spirit work in our lives? If we are, we can become new creations in Christ Jesus. But the only way that happens is when we have a new heart in Christ Jesus. I guess one of my favorite news stories, and it means more to me now since I had that big operation last year, was when out in South Africa one day, Christian Bernard walked into the room of Philip Blyberg, a dentist, and he held in his hand a plastic box. And he looked at Philip Blyberg, and Philip Blyberg looked at him, and he said, Dr. Blyberg, do you realize that you are the first man in human history who has ever looked at his own heart because he had had a heart transplant? And the cameras all recorded the moment. Well, Jesus is here, and the Holy Spirit is here, and he can give us a new heart, a heart that can make sense out of the words that we have read and which can cause us to live for the glory of God in a way that, bring honor, that brings honor to him. We've made promises, all of us. Let's rededicate our lives to Jesus now. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Some of us have promised by walking an aisle, by signing a card, or by raising our hands. Some of us have promised down inside our souls. We pray that you will help us to keep our promises to you and that you will watch over our tongues and set a guard upon them that we may by your grace not break a heart through unkind words or split a church, or ruin a friendship, or hurt someone else. But help us to so live for you that from the truth we have learned, we might be able to die to self and to live more and more in the way that will bring glory and honor to your name. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.